entering the Freedom Hut. Is President Trump having his best week ever? We got huge job numbers to discuss. Pelosi and Trump continue their personal feud. Who do you think is going to win that one? Cocaine Mitch is the guy that made sure that this acquittal happened. We'll get into the details of that. And then some Freestyle Friday. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. There's nothing from a legal standpoint. This is... A political thing. And every time I say, this is unfair, let's go to court, they say, sir, you can't go to court. This is politics. And we were treated unbelievably unfairly. And you have to understand, uh, we first went through Russia, Russia, Russia. It was all bull****. <laughs> we then went through the Mueller report. And they should have come back one day later. They didn't. They came back two years later after lives were ruined, after people went bankrupt, after people lost all their money. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. I'm glad that President Trump is running around telling the truth about what has happened here. You could take the point of view on this that he's acquitted, so now he gets to just move on and maybe he should extend a hand of grace to the other side or some such formulation of things. No, I don't think so. Democrats need to pay for what they've done. The best way to make them pay is to continue defeating them. The most notable place you could do that for Trump, for all of us, would be in the election this coming fall. And that's what I think we all should be focused on. But Trump needs to clear the air a little bit, as he did Yesterday, he's had his acquittal. Then there was that State of the Union speech. And let's just go over what's happened this week. You've got the acquittal in the Senate trial. The best State of the Union speech that I've seen in at least, I don't know, 15 years. Uh, The most powerful, the most effective State of the Union speech, to be sure. Pelosi escalating a personal feud with Trump, as we know, that's right in Trump's wheelhouse. If you want to get into a back and forth over who has the better insults, Trust me, Nancy, you're going to lose. And now we have a jobs report out that says 225,000 jobs plus wage growth accelerating. The Democrats are in disarray because what are they really going to say about all of this? You have incredibly high overall happiness ratings from the American people, according to Gallup. Some people are probably happy and don't even realize that they would be less happy If they got their way politically and you had, say, Bernie Sanders or Buttigieg or any of these other candidates who all of a sudden were the ones calling the shots, the country did not feel as as uh, as bright. The country did not feel as happy. It did not feel as forward leaning and future looking as it did uh, now, as it when you compare it to the Obama administration, it just. We're in a different space now. We're in a different place as a country. Things are going really well, and that's why Democrats have to come up with some, oh, it's Russia, oh, it's it's this, it's that, it's the other thing, it's Ukraine, emoluments clause. Turns out, I think just today, federal court, a federal appeals court said that they can't sue Trump over the emoluments clause. I mean, this is all just the tactics of desperation, because what else are they going to say? But this is also a different moment. 
Because Democrats in the early stages of the Trump presidency, one of their recurring promises, one of the things that they said separated them from Trump was that they were adults, they were responsible, respectful, that they were the, the adults in the room. That, that was one of the continued talking points you heard from Democrats. They are the adults in the room, and Trump is a, you know, a man baby, he throws tantrums, all this stuff. Now, we see with Pelosi and with these other Democrats, uh, they have no dignity. They'll do whatever. They'll say whatever. Anything that works, anything that gets a, a bump of support on social media from their base supporters, anything, whatever it is, whatever works, they'll throw any institution under the bus. They will discard the rules of decorum. They'll pretend that somehow what they said yesterday wasn't, in fact, what they said because there's more effective, more useful things for them to say today. So they just change. They just shift. That is, in fact, what they do. Um, Trump is calling them out on this. He's calling them to task. And I think that's exactly what he should do right now because the Democrats are running scared politically. They got nothing right now. Iowa was a debacle, an absolute debacle. It's kind of amazing. People are just finding out now that the Iowa caucuses, which is a highly bizarre, somewhat Byzantine process to begin with. Why is this the way that it goes? That they hadn't put out the raw vote data before. It was just the end results of the process, but without actually seeing who voted for whom. Uh, and now we see that the Bernie Sanders folks, I think, do have a really legitimate gripe about all of this. You see, there's a a, a decision point right now that Democrats are facing, and there's no turning back from it. Once they've jumped in the pool, they're wet, they're in, there's nowhere else to go. That pool being socialism. And they must see at some level that the establishment path against Trump, running, running a total empty suit figurehead for the Democrat Party like Joe Biden, is just not really an effective strategy. They must think right now, they must recognize that's probably not going to work. And so then you have to ask yourself, well, are they willing to make the Bernie Sanders plunge? Willing to go all in on Bernie? Because Bernie's willing to go all in on you. As long as you're not a millionaire, a billionaire, or an oligarch. The oligarchy runs this country. Uh, so Trump obviously sees what's going on here. And he's capitalizing on it because the disarray of the Democrats is a reminder to the American people that, hey, things are going really well right now. And these other people who keep telling you that they'll do a better job, they're a clown show. And oh, by the way, they're a vicious clown show. They're nasty people. Trump, for example, speaking about the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, said the following. Play clip three, if you would, Producer Mark. I've always said they're lousy politicians, but they do two things. They're vicious and mean. Vicious. These people are vicious. Adam Schiff is a vicious, horrible person. Nancy Pelosi is a horrible person. And she wanted to impeach a long time ago when she said, I pray for the president. I pray for the president. She doesn't pray. She may pray, but she prays for the opposite. <laughs> but I doubt she prays at all. And these are vicious people. But they do two things. They stick together. Historically, I'm not talking now. They stick together like glue. That's how they impeached, because they had whatever the number is, 220 people. So they don't lose anybody. They'll be able to impeach anybody. You could be George Washington. 
He could have just won the war, and they say, let's get him out of office. And they stuck together, and they're vicious as hell. And they'll probably come back for more, but maybe not, because the Republican Party's poll numbers, Mitch, have now gone up more than any time, I think, since 2004, 2005. Some very important points in this. Now, of course, the president starts out by saying Nancy Pelosi is a horrible person. I don't know her personally, but I mean, as a politician, she is a disgrace. And this is not somebody that I, I respect. This is not somebody that I think acts in good faith or acts in the interest of the country. I don't think she's honest. I think she's uh, ruthless and conniving. And that's how she's gotten where she is. Uh, she's not particularly smart. She's not particularly wise. She does not make good decisions. She's not the strategic genius that we have been led to believe she is by the media. Remember, the media is so bizarre and pathetic when they want to create a left-wing icon that they'll run all these stories about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's workout routine. Oh, my gosh. Have you seen how long she can plank? It's amazing. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, let's look at how hard she works. Guys, it's weird. The creepy cult of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, you know, fitness icon, it's weird. And people in D.C., journos, uh, they, they they embrace it. And there's little action figures of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it'd be one thing if it was funny, but they actually, they're not doing it ironically. When I say cocaine Mitch, I'm, I'm kidding. When they talk about how hard Ruth Bader Ginsburg hits the heavy bag and uh, the squat rack, they're being serious. They think we're supposed to be impressed by this. It's bizarre. It, re- it really is. But Pelosi is supposed to be a strategic genius. Pelosi is a great political mind, and they tell us that we must respect her as a result of this. I do not respect her because I don't think those things are true. I think she's been very damaging for the country, and that's where we get to— Well, he he said that the Democrats stick together. This is something that I I don't know how we change within conservative and Republican political culture. And it's not just Pierre Delecto, Monsieur Romney— I am very fancy. Now I can eat the croissant on the Champs-Élysées. And the leftists will say, thank you for casting your vote against uh, President Trump to uh, impeach and remove. You know, Mitt, Mitt now gets to go, he gets to go ski in Vail and Aspen and not get booed. He, they're not going to love him, but, but strangers probably won't boo him. And that's really important to him. There's a really fascinating piece in uh, The Federalist by Chris Bedford. It's just He asks the question, and he goes around asking people in D.C. who work on Capitol Hill, who are political insiders, who are strategists, what, what does Mitt Romney stand for? And I ask you this. Sometimes the most basic questions are the most useful. One of my favorite things to ask, as you know on the show, is what does that mean? And really dig into the question. What is, what is that? Because you hear people say things, you know, oh— there's a phrase that they'll repeat, undermining our institutions. What does that mean? What do they mean by that? It's, it's a phrase that has emotional connection for people, but what are they really trying to say with it? Or what is the underlying evidence or rationale for it? Um, with, with Mitt Romney, what does he stand for is a question that nobody can really answer. He stands for what policy? You'll find him on, the si- on every side of every policy. He has delivered in, in what way for conservatism exactly? He seems to have been very good at delivering for Mitt Romney. And if you look at the way that he has shifted positions over time, I know I'm talking about Mitt Romney today. I, I said I wasn't I said I wasn't gonna do it. Um, I'm gonna back up. I'm just gonna finish this thought and then we're gonna move away from, you know, 
Mitt it or quit it. Uh, Mitt Romney is a Mitt Romneyist, just like James Comey is a Comeyist, and I think that's the critical the critical factor, the critical truth that we all have to remember in this process. What does he stand for? Um, but Democrats stand for the relentless pursuit of power. Uh, Democrats are, as a political party, united when it counts. And they don't have the Mitt Romney effect. People say, oh, but what about Joe Manchin, for example, voting to confirm Kavanaugh? Well, Joe Manchin can, wanted to vote for Kavanaugh. And the Democrats, you notice, didn't give him that much heat over it. Because Democrats run these, oh, I'm sort of a little centrist conservative sometimes in red or red-ish states who will vote with Democrats, you know, 80 percent of the time. But they'll let them they'll let them veer a little bit when they say it's OK. But they never stab the party in the back. They never when it really counts. I mean, that didn't that didn't make or break the Democrat Party on any major policy. Manchin was allowed in essence, Manchin was allowed to vote for the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation. You know why? Because I think it was 70 or maybe even 80 percent of West Virginians thought that Kavanaugh should be confirmed. So the Democrats, when it counts, when it matters, Obamacare, impeachment on the big things, they don't have grandstanders who try to throw a wrench into the gears. They just go along. So Trump points that out. But then the last thing that he says here about how it is now a weapon a political weapon that any majority Democrat Congress, Democrat majority Congress that comes along that doesn't like a president. The precedent has now been set that impeachment is just a thing you do when you really don't like the president. Abuse of power or obstruction of Congress. These no one will even remember that. They'll just remember that the Democrats hated Trump. And so they concocted some cockamamie scheme to impeach and then remove him, knowing they weren't going to remove him. So it was really just about impeachment. And the whole thing was a sham, a scam, a fraud, an embarrassment to the United States government, an embarrassment to the intent of the founders. And that's, I think, another lesson that we take out of all this, that going forward now, you can expect that impeach impeachment is going to be debased because there is no good faith from the Democrats anymore about what's best for the country. They want power. Until they have it, anything goes, anything that works, they're on board for. It doesn't matter what damage they do, what the uh, collateral destruction may be. The relentless pursuit of power is the sole unifying characteristic of the Democratic Party. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Nadler, I know him much of my life. He's fought me in New York for 25 years. I always beat him. And I had to beat him another time. And I'll probably have to beat him again. Because if they find that I happen to walk across the street and maybe go against the light or something, let's impeach him. So I'll probably have to do it again because these people have gone stone cold crazy. But I've beaten them all my life. And I'll beat them again if I have to. They're going to impeach Trump again if they're in the majority. I'm, I'm telling Trump. I've said it before. Trump said it. I've been telling you it on the show for a while. They have changed nothing about themselves. They've learned nothing. They do not feel chastened. They will do the. They'll drag us through this again. It was so boring, and I'm I'm so happy. I'm so thankful that I was able to skip a lot of the Senate trial. And it's just it was all repetition after. All. I mean, I have a life to lead, right? I mean, I want to do a lot of research for the show, but at some point. There's only so many times you can hear Adam Schiff say, 
But he did it, and the Founding Fathers would be rolling over in their graves. I know they're a bunch of evil racists, but today I'm going to pretend that I love them. Uh, it's just, it, enough is enough, right? You, you couldn't take it anymore. But if you're a crazy person, and you really have convinced yourself that you're going to save the country by obstructing, slowing, attacking, destroying the Trump presidency, all of those things together, if you're really that nuts, of course you're going to do this again. They'll find another reason. I, I would not be surprised. I, I can't say that. I, I do believe if they're in the majority after the re-election, the Democrats will, will move to impeach President Trump again. Because they've, they've created, they've burned all bridges. There's no goodwill between the parties now. There's no sense of respect toward the president. I do believe that uh, you will have a second round of impeachment that will, will, that will come. And I think it's possible I'm not going to say probable. It's possible that they might just uh, resurrect the whole Russia collusion Mueller probe and go go to that. That may that may be the next order. And you say, Buck, that's crazy. Why didn't they? Well, they thought they could cook something up with this Ukraine thing that was better. You know, they, they were looking for something else. But that doesn't mean they won't go back to Plan B. And Plan B is Russia, Russia, Russia. Plan B is uh, you know running around. Calling Trump a traitor, referring to Moscow Mitch. I mean, the, the people that say this stuff on TV, I don't know how they're not. Well, they're too, I don't know, they're, they're too stupid and vain to be embarrassed by their own stupidity. That's a constant among CNN, MSNBC anchors, uh, all these political pundits that I see going on ABC. ABC News has got some of the worst ones, by the way. Uh, the, what, I, what I see happening there is just a constant stream of stupidity, and, and no one ever comes on air to say, you know what, I was wrong. Think about it this way. How many pundits have you heard that called for Trump, that said that Trump was going to destroy the country, who have later on said, you know what, I was wrong. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now that the Senate has spoken in terms of any punishment to the president, he's impeached forever, no matter what he says or whatever headlines he wants to carry around. You're impeached forever. You're never getting rid of that scar. Uh, and history will always record that you were impeached for undermining the security of our country, jeopardizing the integrity of our elections, and violating the Constitution of the United States. Our purpose in all of this in addition to holding him accountable so he stops doing what he's doing. No future president thinks that she or he uh, could have liberty to take us away from a republic, if you can keep it, to a Second Amendment enables me to do whatever I want. No, that's not what our Constitution is about. Yeah, that's right. Nancy Pelosi cares so much about the Constitution, the Constitution that she has neither read nor understood, but she loves it. Oh, she holds it close at night. She holds it close, not as close as as the pearl clutching that she does, though, about Trump's lack of decorum. Oh, <gasps> Trump is he's such a ruffian, such a such a Philistine, a barbarian. A, uh, I'm trying to think of other words that are a vandal. Isn't it interesting? These are different, you know, groups of of uh, of migrants over time. You know, goth, which now we think of as people that have dark hair, uh, you know, black dyed hair and black stuff around their eyes and all, you know, all this, I don't know, black lip liner. Well, how do you, it's just wearing black everywhere, right, Mark? That's what a goth is pretty much. You got everything's black. Yeah, I mean, you put black on everything, paint, things, nails. Uh, but gothic obviously refers to architecture. As you know, we have, we have 
I like to call him Markitecture now, also known as Architecture Producer Mark or Architecture Professor Mark. Uh, but Gothic architecture was supposed to be a pejorative initially. This is a fun fact. That's nothing to do with Nancy Pelosi. But they, the Gothic architecture, they said, was a bad thing because it wasn't the neoclassical or neo-Romanesque, not neoclassical, but it wasn't the classical or Romanesque architecture. And uh, then, of course, we saw some of the most beautiful cathedrals ever. Barbarians, that was the Greeks who said that people that weren't Greeks, they made like a barbar sound when they would talk. So that's how we got that word. Anyway, just some, some fun side notes here. But Trump is a barbarian, according to Nancy Pelosi. He throws out all of the different important parts of uh, of decorum and con now she didn't address she didn't introduce him the right way she made faces and acted like a child during the state of the union address and then after she ripped up his speech which was just pathetic but she wants to lecture the country still on these serious breaches of conduct that have occurred under trump play six please producer mark it was, a, 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 in my view, a manifesto of, of mistruths, of falsehoods, blatantly really dangerous to the well-being of the American people if they believed what he said. So, again, we do not want Chamber of the House of Representatives to be used as a backdrop for one of its reality shows with unreality in his presentation. And, by the way, a serious breach to start shouting four more years on the floor of the house. Totally inappropriate. Oh, she wants to lecture everybody on what's appropriate and what's not after doing wildly inappropriate things. At some point, it's not just politics. It is personal. When people are trying to get you fired from your job by lying about you and also want to criminally prosecute you for doing nothing wrong and ruin you and perhaps take away your freedom, you're allowed to dislike them. You see, this isn't normal politics we're talking about now. This is why you have to be a wartime conservative. And we'll get to wartime conservative Mitch McConnell in a little bit because some very important points about what Mitch did to prepare for this onslaught against the presidency. Uh, but there's, there's not a – this isn't about disagreement, argument, maneuvering, and voting so much anymore. It's about people want to destroy an individual who represents – a challenge to their power structure and also a challenge to their sense of superiority. I mean, if Trump can come along and be better at this than all these elitists who say that they need to be the ones in charge, they need to govern, what does that mean about everything else? He is he is kicking at some of the foundation of the power structure. He's actually starting to push on the on the support beams a bit. And this unsettles people greatly like Nancy Pelosi. Um, but Nancy Pelosi is saying that the big problem here is that the Congress had people chanting for Republicans, obviously chanting four more years. When uh, meanwhile, it was, it was very much her intent to to end this presidency. You have to keep that in mind, too. Uh, the vote for impeachment is a vote to stop a president from continuing to be in office. What do they really think America would be like the day after that? Now, now we can really dig into this for a second because it didn't happen. But what do they think the outcome would be? That, that all of a sudden the country would be better off? That the Trump movement would disappear? I mean, look, Trump's got children, some of whom may very well be running for the presidency themselves in a matter of years. Uh, the Trump movement, he has 97 percent Approval within the Republican Party, 97% of Republicans like, yep, Trump's doing a good job. 
and they think that they're going to remove him on on a garbage. I mean, made up the it is not it is not possible to be an intelligent person and think that obstruction of Congress here was a fair thing to charge. I mean, put aside if you think that the abuse of power, I mean, that's ultimately that's a judgment call. You could say that there's any number of ways that presidents abuse their power. And then you could say, well, if you've abused your power even a little bit, maybe you should be removed from office. I mean, this was on the abuse of power scale. I think it's I think it's a zero. But even if you think it constituted some kind of abuse, it wasn't a big one at all. It absolutely was not. But here we are, Democrats telling us that he should have been removed from office. But they're the ones that want to heal the country and bring everyone back together. They're the ones that we should turn to now for unity and and guidance and wisdom going forward. Oh, and she says that Trump's never getting rid of the scar of impeachment. Well, I guess he's also never getting rid of the vindication of acquittal because he has been vindicated. It's, a, it's an entirely political process, it's not a criminal trial. Political process. Said, nope, didn't happen. Now, it is also funny that Nadler, and by the way, I, I didn't mention this before. When he's talking about Nadler and how he's been battling him in New York for years. Man, New York, the only place I think that has like a greater concentration of just the worst lib politicians than New York, than New York and particularly New York. It's really New York City when I say New York. It might be California, but I don't know if anybody really, when you add it up, we got New York has AOC, Nadler, New York produced Anthony Weiner, uh, Governor Cuomo is still the governor. Uh, and I think of who else in the mix here. Is he still the governor, is he? Yes. Okay. I was going to say another governor, Elliot Spitzer. I was trying to remember. That's yes. right. Spitzer. Among the biggest dirtbags you could find anywhere. And CNN gave him a show after all of his dirtbaggery uh, was exposed. He is. A, I, I had a friend who, uh, well, you all know if you look back and see, but. Uh, Will Kane had to step in. My old buddy Will Kane from Real News had to step in and, and co-host a show with Spitzer because Kathleen Parker, whom I don't know and I've actually never met, was supposed to was hosting the show with him, Parker Spitzer, and it, she she just couldn't deal with it anymore. I mean, he's such a jerk. He's such a bad. He's such a bad person. A fundamental. Oh wait, but there's even more. The guy who who's the guy who is uh, Mr. Wokeness and Mr. Me Too defender. Um, but he's, uh, I'm for, he's, he was the state attorney general. I'm blank. Do you know what I'm sorry? I'm blanking on his name. The guy, he had to step down because he's like an abuser of women, but he was Mr. Oh, I'm, I'm a me too defender. You know what I'm talking? I'll remember his name a little bit. He's another guy, another Democrat from New York. The worst. We're just churning out the worst Democrat politicians from this place ever. It really is. Oh, I, I, here we go. Producer Nick has got my back here. Eric Schneiderman. Thank you, producer Nick. I mean, Schneiderman's a total a total dirtbag. You look at the we have we have like the the all star team of the worst here. It's like if you're picking the worst politicians, I don't think any place even can compare with New York. And remember, California has also given us Devin Nunes, who, and I might return to this a little later, unsung hero really should get more credit. Devin Nunes was standing athwart the the rush to use Russia to destroy the presidency. I mean, Devin Nunes, like a boss, took all the heat. And he was right about all of the major points of it. All of it. People were saying he shouldn't be allowed on the committee. Republicans were, you know, fake Republicans. They were turning on him. But California's given us Devin Nunes. 
California um, gave us Ronald Reagan. I mean, you know, California is actually produced as a as a state in terms of its politicians some some great stuff too, to balance out the a little bit. I don't know if you could ever really balance out, but it balanced out the Pelosi and the Schiff and the. Who's the who's the worst politician in California? I mean, I I, I think it's probably Nancy Pelosi, but Schiff is right up there. I mean, those they're at the very top of my. You know, we could create a list. We could call it the Schiff list of the worst politicians in the United States. But uh, no. Oh, oh, wait. I shouldn't leave out a terrible politician who's also uh, a bit of a joke. Eric Swalwell, perhaps best known for letting one rip during an interview on national TV, which I am not making that up, by the way. Uh, that was a funny moment to be on Twitter. Play a play a nine, please. We'll hear from Mr. Swalwell himself. He's going to do it again. <laughs> he did not look like a man who was contrite or who had learned a lesson, as some senators naively had stated that believed uh, that he had. No, he is em- as emboldened as he was on July 25, the day after Bob Mueller testified and he made that call to President Zelensky. And it's incumbent upon us in Congress to keep checking him and checking him and checking him at every corrupt turn that he takes. The uh, president, as you heard, uh, he railed against uh, Republican Senator Mitt Romney uh, for his vote to convict the president. He also, you know, bitterly went after the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. What's your response to those personal attacks? Well, Senator Romney will favorably be remembered by history. This president uh, will not. Sort of the way that you can always turn to Joe Biden for his unwisdom, meaning that when Joe Biden talks about a foreign policy issue, whatever he says is the wrong thing. So just be on the opposite side of Joe Biden. You're good to go. Uh, Eric Swalwell, historian, same idea. No, I don't think history is going to remember Mitt Romney's vote as some daring act of courage, because first of all, it did nothing other than get Mitt Romney 24 hours, maybe 48 hours of praise from libs who hate his guts and will spend the rest of their lives and the rest of his of his life undermining him, bad mouthing him, but maybe just not as vociferously as they had planned to before. There you go, Mitt. That's a big win. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I've shown every level of respect. I say to my members all the time, there's no such thing as an eternal animosity. There are eternal friendships, but you never know on what uh, cause you may come together with somebody you may perceive as your foe right now. Everybody is a possible ally in whatever comes next. E pluribus unum from anyone. They didn't know how many we'd be or how different we'd be. But they want us always to remember that we were one. And they, our founders, had their differences, uh, as do we. So, again, I extend the hand of friendship to him to welcome him as the president of the United States to the people's house. It was also an act of kindness because I looked to me like he was a little sedated. He looked that way last year, too. But he didn't want to shake hands. That was that. That meant nothing to me. It had nothing to do with my tearing up. Oh, she wants to play the who looks sedated, maybe a little a little out of it, maybe a little hungover, a little drugged. She wants to go there with Trump. Nancy, Nancy, don't don't poke the bear on this one. I, I think it's a bad idea to start 
start taking it to that place. Because, you know, Nancy Pelosi, I've heard her in press conferences, and all of a sudden you're like, what was that? What is, what is she? He starts kind of like a little slurry, a little mumbly. You're like, well, what's going on here? She's going to go there on Trump? He looks sedated? Nancy. Glass house, Nancy. Glass house. I would not, I would not recommend that as, as a way forward for her uh, at all. I think that she's making a, a major mistake there. Um, do, by the way, do we play the full, the full glory of Mitt Romney's media love fest the way that they all oh no we have not done that yet just i know i know i said we're limiting mitt today we're limiting mitt today play eight wow that was extraordinary that was pure honesty and emotion from uh mitt romney mitt romney of course the former republican nominee in the moment as he was speaking it felt historic i mean mitt romney is known for being just a nice water in his veins kind of guy swearing an oath before god for mitt romney is like unlocking his superpower uh, he's a little like fortinbras in act five of hamlet right mm-hmm. not a lot seems to phase him when i heard him explain with such elegance and simplicity tears came to my eyes I've always had such great respect for him. That was a true profile and courage speech. It will cement Senator Romney's legacy. He's changed his place in history. So for anyone who wonders, why would Mitt, why would Mitt do it? Nothing to gain. No. Lies. That's what he gained. What you just heard. That's why Mitt sold out, backstabbed, became a, a turncoat against the single best defender, the man who delivers more for the American people as the head of the Republican Party than any of his predecessors in my lifetime. That that man, okay, in my adult lifetime, I don't want to start getting into the Reagan comparison quite yet, but that man uh, is is somebody who Mitt Romney is willing to abandon when it counts. And I mean, how much does it really count? It's all about the optics. It's about the perception here. But it, I think it does matter the Democrats were in the midst of having a complete collapse of a week, a collapse of a week. And then Mitt gave them their one their one little little moment of, of uh, reprieve. Why? Well, we know why. Because if you're Mitt Romney and you went to Harvard and you made all this money being a private equity guy and you've been a governor and you've run the Olympics and, you know, you like adulation, you like praise, you like people to talk about how great you are. And you don't hear all the little people, all the little Trump supporters, you don't hear from them. Who do you hear from when you turn on the TV? Oh, you hear from the clowns in the media that we just, I mean, it all sounded like they were trying out for a high school drama team there. <gasps> that was such an amazing speech by Mitt Romney. <gasps> Mitt Romney brought a tear to my eye by casting a vote that didn't change anything except let us sit here and talk about the vote. I, I, mean, I, I will never forget it with Mitt Romney. I mean, when, when it really came down to it. Um, he's not a wartime conservative. He's a Benedict Arnold conservative. And that's something we should all remember because there are some other folks out there, Devin Nunes, Mitch McConnell, people that you might not have expected who have held the line. They have stood strong. They have stayed firm. And they have been on the forefront here of the battle to defend Trump. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. He's the other side's worst nightmare. This guy goes down into dungeons and basements. He'll find a document no matter what. He's the most legitimate human being. He's the hardest worker. He's unbelievable. 
He took tremendous abuse. I mean, abuse. The, the, the media and, you know, the other side and the bad ones, the leakers, the liars, the dirty cops, they wanted to destroy him. They tried. They got close, but he wouldn't let it happen. And honestly, in a certain way, he was the first one. Wouldn't you say Jim and Mark and everything? This was the first guy. He came out of nowhere. He's saying, these people are corrupt. He's still saying it. And he was unbelievable. Devin Nunes. I didn't even know him. I just heard there were like, there was this congressman who kept going into a basement, into files. He knew something was wrong. You felt it, right? It's true. I remember the consensus opinion in D.C., except with some with some pro-Trump people holding out from it. But the, the, you were hearing from a lot of folks, oh, Nunes, is, he's ahead of his skis on this one. He's Of course, the Democrats were saying he's, uh, he's a disgrace and he's corrupt and, and he's, you know, the worst. But even people who were wishy-washy, you know, moderate Republican types like, oh, I don't know if Devin Nunes is, really knows what he's talking about here. And people were abandoning him left and right. Why, why doesn't it matter more? <laughs> In this whole saga of the Trump administration, why doesn't it matter more who has been correct? You'll notice this. There's no accountability for all the wrongness that you've seen in the media that's anti-Trump because anti-Trump wrongness is considered in itself a virtue. If you lied about Trump to destroy Trump, that's fine as far as the left is concerned because your ultimate aim was in line with what they want. So there's no accountability. That's why... You know, I mean, Rachel Maddow's show, for example, rose to be almost as big as the biggest Fox News shows. I think even some nights she might have been right alongside them in terms of the numbers, might even beat them in some of the on some nights. And Rachel Maddow's show every night was some Kremlinology conspiracy hour of nonsense. I mean, you, you turn. I mean, I didn't watch it that much, but I would see some of the monologues she'd do, and it was you know, and then this oligarch here talked to that oligarch there, and then a guy named Yuri talked to a guy named Oleg, and then you know, blah blah blah, Trump Tower meeting, boom, Russia collusion proven, and you just say what? What does this even mean? But there's no because the audience wanted a narrative of Trump's evil, Trump's treason, and so they were being fed that, and it didn't matter that it wasn't true, and they didn't care that they had been lied to all that time. They liked the lie. They appreciated the lie. And then they turn around and talk to us about honesty. By the way, with Pelosi saying that she extended a hand of friendship, if someone calls me a traitor, they're never my friend. If someone says that I betrayed the United States, I'm never going to look. And, and they say it publicly and repeatedly and, and then try to prosecute me for it, by the way. Investigate me for it with the hope of getting me fired and perhaps even thrown in prison? The person's never going to be my friend. Why would Trump view all these psycho lib Dems any differently than that? They, they're, not, they're not just running campaigns on how Trump is uh, you know, not a great steward of the economy, because they can't, because he is a great steward. You know, that's a joke now. They're trying, but it's not working. Um, they they tried this whole thing about how Trump was a, a traitor to the country and worked with Russia and stole the election, an illegitimate president. Is, is he supposed to forget that? Is he supposed to pretend that that never really happened? I, I just, I wonder. What What is really the expectation? He's going to rise above, I don't think you ever rise above that. If I had kids and I knew that someone was illicitly trying to concoct a story that would lead to the federal government investigating and perhaps incarcerating them, 
I would never be okay with that. I'd never be friends with that person. And these are these are critical calculations that Republicans need to make, right? Need to understand who we really face. This brings me back to the wartime conservatism idea. They're not they're not looking to convince us. They're not looking to show us how great their policies are. They are looking to shut us down, shut us up, lock us up, and do whatever the heck they want, whatever crazy collectivist, socialist, statist garbage they've got in mind. They just want to do it. They want to ram it down, down our throats. They want to Californiaize the country. One party rule, one, one system in control, no debate, no alternative, nothing. You be quiet while we tell you how it's going to be. That is, that is the Democrat pitch now to the other side. That's a Democrat pitch, by the way, also to independents. Unfortunately, on the left, they've just all gone along with this now. I mean, I don't know how I don't know how you can think you're a a well-adjusted, intelligent adult and find the Green New Deal to be anything other than an abject absurdity, a, a complete absurdity. And the same adults will say that a wall is dumb. I mean, I wish you could have seen some of you maybe did when I was uh, debating, not really debate. Well, I was interviewing and then it turned into a debate with Max Boot, who's another one of these never Trumpers who's a Democrat now. He does performance art where he pretends to be a real conservative for Democrats. The Democrats say dance. He says, how fast? How high? What do you want me to do? But he said, your walls don't work. He pulled out that talking point. I said, this is the, how could someone say something so stupid? Of course, walls work. And walls work even at the border. As the Border Patrol will tell you, every Border Patrol agent I talked to said, yeah, walls are very helpful. They're not a cure-all. It's not a panacea, but they're very helpful. But people will say the Green New Deal is an intelligent idea and walls don't work. And they think that they sound smart. They think that that makes sense. This is the uh, this is up is down and down is up. This is good is bad and bad is good. That's what the Democrats are increasingly getting trapped into, that, that there's no other way to view their approach to the country, their approach to governance. They don't like what they're seeing in the Trump administration. And I keep looking around saying, what exactly is it they disapprove of so much the peace prosperity booming economy what is what is it that bothers them so much oh they don't like the tweets they think that they think that trump is mean and i think that if nothing else by being willing to punch back at the media trump has in many ways nullified one of the democrats primary advantages in political in political world uh, which is that they have always been able to call upon the media to do their bidding and Republicans take the Romney approach of, oh, I don't want to be too mean to the media and I've got to be a I've got to be a good guy. Can't say anything nasty to Jim Acosta. Or... That was the approach. Other people understand that they're they're looking to destroy the political opposition. It's not even just enough for them to win an election. They want to win an election, enforce their will and then go around, you know, Locking up any any stragglers and survivors from the battlefield. I mean, they, they have no interest, no interest in trying to convert Republicans, trying to bring us over to their side, show us how effect. Well, what, what is the big Democrat policy of the last? I don't know. Just just think about this. The last decade that has really worked out. I know, Obamacare is so great. Of course not. If it was so great, they wouldn't be talking about single payer now and, and Medicare for all. So we all know it, that was that was all. Remember, we were told that, oh, we fix health care, health care for everybody. People know what they're doing. They have no idea. They're not good at this. What was the big idea, the big policy they had that worked so well? 
trade policy, immigration policy. What was it that exactly was implemented? We had Obama for eight years. And you just have to ask yourself, what was accomplished in, the, in those eight years? They keep saying he brought us out of a recession. He brought us out of a recession very badly. And the banks were stabilized by the Bush administration, which nobody remembers anymore. But it was actually Bush working with, with his – and Bush was trying to put out a fire that effectively had been started 30 or 40 years ago by government housing policy. And, I mean, that was a long – What, by the way, what an incredible stroke of luck for the Democrats. We, we often forget about this. If the housing meltdown had just happened a little bit later, it would have been on a Democrat's watch, Right? Would have been a very different narrative all of a sudden. They say, oh, well, he inherited it from Bush. But yeah, but the, anyone who's being honest about the housing meltdown would tell you that it was decades in the making. In some ways, it stretches all the way back to the Community Reinvestment Act and redlining and the, all, all these government efforts to effectively uh, remove discrimination, but then also in the effort to remove discrimination from the lending process to remove the usage of uh, FICO scores. And say that, well, it doesn't matter if you can pay this back or not, because there's a there's a social justice component to giving loans to people. I mean, the, and then the government was going to sue anybody that didn't go along with that. And then, you know, Fannie and Freddie Mae came along and then Wall Street's like, oh, we can make money. Wall Street's like a pack of wolves and they saw a way to make money. And then we know we almost melted down the global economy. Right. So there was bad things that, that were happening. But where where is the Democrat? The Democrat win exactly is where? What do they offer? That's going to be so much better. They're just going to wipe all they can do is find ways to take money from all of us and tell you that it's not coming from you, it's coming from the other guy. I mean, that, that is the central premise of the Democratic Party's argument for why they should be in power today. That they'll do a better job, but everything is, we're going to spend more money that's going to go to you, but we're not going to take more money from you. This is, the, this is a lie. I mean, you can go back, uh, there's, a, there's a fantastic, pretty short work of um, political science, political theory, by uh, a Frenchman. Mais oui, bien sûr, not Pierre Delecto, uh, but uh, Frederick Bastiat. Bastiat, the law. Um, it was written in 1850, and it was two years after the Third French Revolution, and he goes into the notion of plunder, that government taking from people is a form of plunder, a form of theft, effectively, and that the way that a lot of people will find power is by playing to that sense that we can all live at someone else's expense. Somebody else will do the work. Somebody else will go through the bad stuff. You're just going to get all the good stuff. But give us the power to make that happen in the government, and you're just going to have the good end of it. I mean, this is, this is really the roots, of, the roots of socialism, the roots of Marxism, communism. It's going to be better for it's going to be better for all of you. It's those other people that are going to have to just pay a little more, work a little harder, play by the rules that we set up. Uh, radical equality results in radical misery. Is that that's a that's a truism that is true throughout the ages. Man, I got a little bit, I got a little bit off uh, off the road of talking about Devin Nunes being the one guy who was willing to stand up and defend Trump when nobody else was. But I do think it's worth it. I, I want to return to this, uh, the, the central flaw of the Democrat argument right now, which it's all about redistribution and, and the enlarging of the state at the expense of the individual, 
by making promises to the collective. Right? I'm going to be good for everybody, but it's not going to it's not going to hurt you. The or rather, it's going to hurt you, the individual person. Uh, but that's okay because it's going to be good for everybody else. We forget that everybody else is just a, a way of saying a whole lot of single individuals, a whole lot of people. Um, but uh, yeah, Devin Nunes did some very, very good stuff. You know who else did some great stuff? I just want to give him a shout out for a second. My main man, Cocaine Mitch. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I want to talk to you about the rise of Cocaine Mitch. He was not long ago, even five years ago, a guy who had an approval rating of 26%. Excellent piece written about this by my friend Elena Plott uh, in the New York Times. She's an excellent writer. Um, 26%. Now it's 68%. And, and rising. Mitch McConnell held the line. He knew that this was another, that this whole Senate trial was going to turn into another Kavanaugh-style scam by the Democrats. The whole thing was a fraud. The whole thing was a phony. They were just doing whatever they could to extend it out, give them more leeway to try more scams on top of scams. And he said, no way. No way. Here's something else that you should know about McConnell that comes across in this story. He's a guy who's become a wartime conservative who wasn't. He was an establishment figure. He was a guy who worked in the legislature and was trying to get things done. And I, I think he's always been well-intentioned. I think, he's a, I think he is a real Republican. Uh, but he sees what we're up against now. The left has changed. The same way that CNN has changed, and I tell you that frequently, and it really has, the left has changed now. There's a ferocity and an insanity that is driving so much of what we see from the contemporary left. And we have to take note of that and respond appropriately. We're not dealing with the Democratic Party of JFK. We're not dealing with the Democratic Party of the Clinton, Bill Clinton years. Something has shifted. There's a there's a, a switch that has occurred. And Mitch McConnell has risen to the occasion. He knows what they're trying to do. And uh, he is now battle tested. And he has become a wartime conservative and really become a, a colonel among wartime conservatives, if you will, because he knows what the other side's trying to do. And he has not he has not buckled to the public pressure. He hasn't decided he's going to try to extend some olive branch just so the Democrats can light it on fire in front of his face. No. He has actually become a very effective judicial confirmation machine, putting great conservative judges with lifetime appointments from from just federal courts all the way up to the Supreme Court. I think it's over 100. I think it was 187 judges as of this week. Perhaps even more now. It might have been a, it might have been a couple more. Um, he's a guy who has embraced a little bit, I think, of the the character that has been created around this. I mean, we jokingly call him Cocaine Mitch because it was actually a Republican challenger to him called him that in an ad. But it's a, a recognition of a new swagger and a new sense of defiance from a guy who's in his late seventies. And is a generally seems like he's a pretty soft spoken and, and mellow dude, but he understands that his legacy, if you if you're somebody who really cares about rule of law, the Constitution and conservatism, when all said and done, when, when Mitch McConnell finally decides to, to hang it up and not be 
and not be a senator anymore. He's, I don't even know how many terms. He's five, six terms. He's been a senator for a long time. But when Mitch McConnell finally decides that it's all, all going to be, uh, you know, it's time for him to retire, um, no one who is being honest will be able to look back at what he's done and say he wasn't, he wasn't, at least in the latter part of his career, a warrior for the cause and an effective one, an effective one, a, a really a, a Republican answer to the bare knuckle tactics of Harry Reid when he was Senate Majority Leader under the Obama administration. But I thought among the most interesting things in this very excellently or very well written um, article was when it became clear that as soon as the Democrats won the House, McConnell started preparing for the impeachment that he knew was going to come. What does that tell you, by the way? People are oh, we need to have a trial. How did Mitch McConnell know they were going to impeach Trump? Because he understands the enemy we face. He understands the opposition. All this other stuff about, oh, the Ukraine phone call and Russia and quid pro, quid pro quo and all this. And all this stuff that Pierre Delecto fell for at the very last moment. It's all, it's all a charade. It's a show. It's kabuki theater. It's distraction. What really happened here was the Democrats got their opportunity to lash out at the president using the impeachment process. Mitch knew it was coming, and they prepared for it. And there's a lot about how Ted Cruz uh, and others, and Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, I give props. Mike Lee's been good lately. I, 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 no, I don't dislike Mike at all. I think, he's a good, I think he's good for what he does. I just find him a little boring sometimes on TV. He's a very smart guy, and he's an ethical guy. Uh, and but Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, I mean, some of the really some of the really high IQ conservatives in the Senate, uh, they, they they circled the wagons early and they got their fellow Republican senators in the room. And they're like, this is what's going on. And these are the constitution constitutional issues. And how, I got more on this. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple podcast, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, the Senate has clearly spoken now. The president was acquitted. Do you think no. your House colleagues... Well, <laughs> he ahead. wasn't acquitted. It was a rigged trial. You don't get acquitted when you don't even get to call witnesses or relevant witnesses or have the documents because the president stonewalled all efforts on the part of the House to get the information they requested. So there you go. It was a rigged trial. He can run around saying he was acquitted, but uh, you don't get acquitted in a rigged trial. I just want to point out, uh, Senator, uh, there was a roll call, guilty or not guilty. Yes. Not guilty uh, was the majority. And the the Chief Justice of the United States announced that he was acquitted, that he was not guilty. But the American public knows that it was a rigged trial. So, okay, you're found not guilty in a rigged trial. I don't think that, that, that they think that this was all kosher. No, it wasn't. So, meanwhile, you have the president crowing about it, which is totally expected. And now it's anything goes for this president and this administration. Producer Mark, what do you think of Maisie Hirono appropriating the term kosher here? Thumbs I mean, up, a- thumbs down. As being used as a term in general, or yeah. using it here? I don't know, just in general. I mean, I, I she heard, allowed. I feel like I feel like if you take if you're going to throw around cultural appropriation, uh, I don't I know. Mean, if, I don't know if libs get to pick and choose when they can culturally appropriate. I'm pretty I sure Maisie Hirono like is not Jewish. A lot of people now use the term no, in general. Use the term kosher. I know, I, but I just like to good. hold them to their own crazy standards. Sure, okay. I mean, I'll use I understand. The, I'll use the term kosher. Yeah, but yeah, I definitely don't keep kosher. Yeah, is there like is kosher food? Have you ever had really amazing kosher food? Oh, yeah. There is delicious kosher food, like at a uh, kosher deli. 
Well, yeah. Well, that's well, yeah. I guess you like uh, what's the um, not well brisket, but I'm thinking of the what's uh, the corned uh, beef for corned beef pastrami. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, I'm trying yeah. to think of. The the, the pastrami. Love a good pastrami on rye. I'm yeah. more of a corned beef guy actually. You're making me hungry right now. Yeah. So, Maisie Hirono, speaking of IQs in the Senate, I think among the very lowest, but speaking of high IQs in the Senate, I was talking to you about Mike Lee and and Ted Cruz and uh, the way that they were preparing for what they knew was going to be the most dirty, underhanded scheme to remove a president from office that any of us have ever seen or lived through or probably will live through. Uh, and Mitch McConnell was absolutely... Uh, they're directing them, rallying them together, making sure everybody understood what, what was really at stake here. And I will say that Ted Cruz was, according to this article at least, another guy who, just like me, was like, stop with the quid pro quo. It's not about whether there was or was not a quid pro quo. This this was unfor- this is one of the unfortunate, unfortunate situations of this uh, from the Republican side, they never should have gotten into this. Oh, because that was when all of a sudden Bolton, you know, Walrus Bolton was going to come out and be, like, oh, it was a quid pro quo. Whatever. Oh, uh, no, it was that there was no, that, that there was no there there. It wasn't wrong. He didn't do anything. And it wasn't wrong, even if he did the thing that he was trying to do, which was to get an answer from a foreign head of state about an investigation about the Bidens. That was a legitimate line of inquiry based on what we know about the Bidens. Ted Cruz knew that. And he was he was making sure everybody understood that behind closed doors. Don't make this don't make this about whether or not they can. That was the trap that Republicans were falling into. Don't make this maybe about a quid pro quo one way or the other. No, make this about this is not impeachable conduct. Nothing happened. And even if it did happen, it is not impeachable. That's how weak their case was. And also note that that's why they had to throw in the the flimsy. I mean, the, the, the preposterous. It's not even flimsy. I mean, it's absurd obstruction of Congress charge. But, you know, I know for some of you, you're probably not used to hearing me or hearing anyone on the right talk about Mitch McConnell as cocaine Mitch. By the way, they started calling him Moscow Mitch. Democrats were doing that as a pejorative. He understands how the game is played. And so uh, they, I think Mitch McConnell's staff started saying that that was a new drink. I don't know what I don't know what it was. I know Moscow Mule is like... Uh, a Moscow Mule is vodka and ginger beer, I think, and mint. Do I have that right? And you no, drink you're it out of a brass of, mug. Uh, mojito. No, no, no. No, Mos- that has the mint. Oh, you're the right mint. about the ginger Moscow, beer. Moscow Mule's ginger beer, yes. vodka. And it has to be in that like tin thing. Yeah, the br- it's a brass, brass mug. Yeah. Yeah. Those are delicious. They are delicious. Yeah. yeah. Calorically, not so great for you. But. Sure. And then again, alcohol. I mean, all alcohol is not so great for you. Mm-hmm. Or you can drink like super ultra light beer that tastes like water. And then why are you wasting your time? You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Cocaine Mitch has become something of a conservative warrior. And I think that he deserves some applause. Um, and he's been very effective on the on judges. And he knows what they're coming at Trump with. And, and he has been a great ally of this Trump administration in dealing with the political attacks uh, against against Trump, uh, Devin Nunes. Um, you know, you got to think Jim Jordan also. You know, how often do you hear this in the media that they really give credit to people who have been on the front line against the psycho lib onslaught against Trump? You don't. You're not going to hear mainstream media ever say, "Oh yeah, they did." You know, of course not. They hate these people. They hate Nunes. They hate Jordan. Jim Jordan and Devin Nunes. I remember interviewing them in the Capitol early on in the Russia. So it would have been like 2018 relatively early on in the uh, Russia 
impeachment, collusion, special counsel, all that stuff. I'm not, not impeachment, sorry, Russia special counsel. Uh, and they were lone voices on some of these issues. And thank heavens they were there and they were willing to, to stick their necks out and make the noises that they did about how, hold on a second, this whole thing. If, if there were not people like Jim Jordan and Devin Nunes, the Democrats probably would have been able to get away with what they were trying all along, which was to bring down this president. I mean, I think it was closer than people realize. You know, the whole Trump Tower meeting, the frenzy around that, you know, Comey and Mueller. And if you didn't have some of these people who knew that what was going on, you want to the way that they speak, the way the media, the slimy, dishonest media speaks about Pierre Delecto right now is the way that we should all be thinking of because they've earned it. People like Nunes and Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows, you know, guys who were willing to take the heat when it really counted and make sure that this president wasn't able to just get completely railroaded, which was what which was what was happening. I think Democrats in part are so bitter about all this because they really believe that they were close to they were close to pushing Trump out. They think that this was maybe going to go their way were it not for a few people. I mean, it's similar to the Kavanaugh situation. You know, we've had these wins, folks, but don't forget, we've had wins that were close fought contests that shouldn't have been. I mean, Kavanaugh, gold standard for the Supreme Court, like the nicest guy anyone's ever heard of by all accounts, the smartest guy that you could possibly want on the Supreme Court. And, you know, they they, they extended an FBI and, oh, can't have the vote, and it became this activist chasing senators in the elevators. Crazy stuff going on. Crazy stuff. And I wasn't I wasn't sure where that one was going to go. It wasn't like impe- we knew impeachment wasn't going to result in removal. I was not sure that Kavanaugh, I was hearing from people in the White House while they were trying to take down Kavanaugh. I was hearing from people off the record. I'm not sure this is I'm not sure that the the big guy's going to, you know, that Trump is going to let this continue. He might pull the nomination. By the way, remember when Bush tried to make Harriet Meyer speaking about if we're st- starting to compare presidencies here. I know we have this fondness for Bush because he was our guy and we rallied behind the commander in chief. And I, he's a good man. I mean, I, I don't I don't have any any animosity toward George W. Bush. I think he's a good man. Um, I think he's limited in some ways. I don't think he was a, a particularly uh, particularly adept in dealing with the politics of the job once he got the job of president. But, uh, you know, you look at the decisions that were made then, the decisions that Trump makes, and I just feel like Trump gets it. I just feel like Trump understands what he's up against. And, uh, oh, yeah, Harriet Myers, by the way, with Bush. That was that was a debacle. That was a bad idea. So I just want to give a little, little golf clap, a little round of applause to uh, Nunes, McConnell, Jordan, Meadows. I'm probably leaving some people out. I, you know, you see them. A lot of them are uh, frequent guests on Sean Hannity's TV show. So you can just look at the congressional lineup on Sean's show, and those are generally some of the biggest defenders of Trump. Uh, and have been all along. So there we have it, folks. Cocaine Mitch, take a bow. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I want to reiterate to you, so we're clear. You got 180,000 people voting when you got eight candidates, when you win the popular vote by 6,000 votes. That is a pretty good victory. So... It looks like Bernie won the popular vote, but we still got it. They got are they going to do a re? I can't even keep up with the Iowa debacle at this point because we're about to go to the first in the nation primary in New Hampshire. Da, 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 da. I remember I was in New Hampshire in 2016 
doing interviews of uh, most of the candidates. You know who wasn't there, unfortunately? The big guy, the Trumpster. He was not in New Hampshire for that uh, that event when I was there. Um, uh, but, yeah, now we're heading to New Hampshire. No one even really knows what's going on in Iowa. Bernie Sanders declaring a victory there. And the I mentioned this, I alluded to this at the beginning of the show. The problem the Democrats have is they've either got to unite behind Bernie or they got to bail on Bernie fast because the worst scenario that they could really that they're likely to go through would be if they decide that Bernie Sanders is the candidate for a while and then the the numbers start to turn because ultimately Bernie's going to be unable to explain and defend a lot of the things that he says he wants to accomplish. You know, Bernie's formulation is pretty straightforward. It's I'm going to give you this thing that's good and it's going to be free for you. And then when you ask him, you know, how, who, where, what, it's going to come from millionaires, billionaires and oligarchs. And you say, okay, but how much? And there's not enough money from them. So where else are we? And then then all of a sudden it just gets into do you want free health care or not? It, It slides immediately. It slides back into just sheer demagoguery. There's not any effort to get into the details or explain it beyond that. I mean, here's a perfect example of, um, well, actually, you have this on on the Buttigieg side quite a bit, too. Buttigieg, who seems in many ways, because he doesn't have the, I don't know how else to say this, he he doesn't really have the mad scientist-like look and character of Bernie Sanders. So Bernie Sanders seems like a character. You know, out of a movie or a TV show or something. You know, Buddha Judge is a guy that comes across very well, you know, good resume, all that stuff. And yet he will even, when the moment is right, he will start to use the usual demagoguery that the left likes to hear about how capitalism has failed. Play uh, 17, please. Well, I think the reason we're having this argument over socialism and capitalism is that capitalism has let a lot of people down. I guess what I'm out there to say is that it doesn't have to be so. I believe in democratic capitalism, but the democratic part is extremely important. Okay, what does that mean? Democratic capitalism? You know, notice that now they're starting to play these games, right? It's not socialism, it's democratic socialism. It's not capitalism, it's democratic capitalism. Um... Well, what's the difference exactly? How are we supposed to think that that is? It just it sounds better. Oh, it's democratic. Oh, it's people power to the people. That that's fine. Democratic is that not what we have right now? In what way do we not have uh, democratic capitalism? But Buddha Judge is not going to be able to answer that. I know we got a debate tonight. I haven't even talked. I'm going to have to watch this thing tonight. I can't believe it. Producer Mark, are you going to watch this thing tonight? No, you're not. Okay, I got to watch it, though. I got to watch it. And it's, the problem with the debates at this point is that we've, we've heard all this stuff. There's really nothing new from these candidates. It's the same routine. It's the same dodges, the same talking points. No, nothing ever really gets done that's that's new and exciting. I mean, here, here's Buttigieg, for example, saying um, that he's going to pay for his health care plan in a way that will never pay for his health care plan, repealing just Trump's tax cuts. Play 11. We scored it and estimate that over 10 years, it'll cost one and a half trillion dollars. That is obviously not a small amount of money, although it's a tiny fraction of what some of the others are. 20, 30, 40, they can't even agree on the estimates. And all we've got to do to pay for it is take two steps. 
Part of that 1.5 comes from rolling back a Trump corporate tax cut that went to the wealthiest and the biggest corporations, didn't do us any good, and it's created a huge deficit. We roll that back, that does most of the work. But there's still a bit of a gap, doesn't quite get us to the 1.5. And so the way we get the rest of it is to take part of the savings, which we think will be about $400 billion over a decade, that we will get from doing something that most Americans believe we should have been doing all along. And that, I mean, it's a no-brainer. And that is to allow Medicare, finally, to negotiate the prices of prescription drugs with the companies that make it. It's just never going to – the numbers are never going to add up. It's never going to work the way that Judge is saying. And I know he was a management consultant for a couple of years at McKinsey or whatever, but or Bain, same thing. All the McKinsey and Bain people listening right now, all five of them are like, oh, it's not the same thing. How, how dare you, sir? It's totally the same thing. But he knows the numbers are never really going to add up. The more they get pushed on these things, the more it will become clear that people don't really want these plans when they have to pay for them. They don't want these policies when they have to deal with the reality of what the policies would really be. And that's where you have a problem for, for Bernie, for Buttigieg. And then you get into the, well, why would you vote for any of the others? Uh, why would you vote for Elizabeth Warren? Or why would you vote for um, Amy? I mean, Amy, look, Amy Klobuchar is not going to win. And the problem is not even that I can't give you a great answer. The problem is I can't really think of any answer. It's just not compelling enough at a national level. And this is where I start to think maybe Michael Bloomberg is going to be. This is what I was trying to get to. Guys, Bloomberg has spent $250 million already on the pres- of his own money on the presidential race. $250 million. Okay, he runs ads on our podcast. <laughs> There's nothing. Please don't complain about it. There's nothing as a matter of FCC law. There's nothing we can do about it. Okay, so be- I keep getting these messages. You know the Mike Bloomberg? I am. What do you I mean? This is the country we live in right now, right? I mean, it's the same reason that I can't say all the salty things on air that I might want to sometimes. Uh, we also have Mike Bloomberg because there are regulations. There are regulations about these things. But if you go into a Democrat primary with these same dynamics, I'm sorry, a Democrat convention with these same dynamics at play, you got to start to think it's not going to be Michelle Obama who comes in to save the party. I don't think Michelle Obama wants to. I don't know her, but from everyone I know who does know her, has been around her, she's happy. she's happy being effectively uh, ultra rich and beloved by everybody and not having to like deal with any of that stuff, like any politician stuff, really. Um, Hillary wants it badly, but she's not going to get it because people realize that would be a mess and a disaster. Who's left? Who do you, who are you able to call upon to be the savior of the democratic party when they're drifting towards socialism in this way? Uh, I think it's quite clear that you're looking probably at, a situation where Mike Bloomberg could all of a sudden become a very interesting, very viable alternative. And all this stuff, all the socialism, all, all that would be swept away. And you would have a guy who's a lib. He's very liberal. He's very progressive. But a guy who does understand how business works, isn't dumb at all, is a very smart guy. We got, you know, is a very capable manager. I I think you got to take Bloomberg seriously, folks. I do. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, everybody. Special treat down here in the Freedom Hut Tribeca version. We've been all over the place. We have our friend Tiana Lowe here. She is a commentary writer for The Examiner. She is in studio and also... 
I'm the only person in media who pronounces your first name correctly now, which is a very exciting this differentiation. This is true, because I'm never going to correct anyone on it. I've never, so it's <laughs> Tiana for those who are not familiar with I've never heard of this before. Yes, no, it's, it's, the way I liken it is the same way everyone in the country would call her Kamala Harris, but it's actually Kamala. Everyone always says Tiana or Tiana. It's actually Tiana. Emphasis is on the first syllable. Tiana. Can I just call you T? Does anyone do that? Is everyone that a thing? Everyone does that. Everyone goes through the evolution where they realize they've been saying my name incorrectly, and then they try and say it properly, and then I just become T. Well, there we go. It's so not a true friendship. I've got some fun. I've got some fun things to uh, to bring into the conversation, courtesy of the polls this week, which I wanted to start with because I think people are arguing that Trump may have had his best his best week ever or close to it, GOP approval, this was tweeted out by uh, David Brooks right before you you came in studio, is now at 51%, the highest it has been since 2005. More Republicans now identify as, I'm sorry, more Americans now identify as Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Gallup observed similar public opinion shifts when Bill Clinton was impeached. Is impeachment a disaster, courtesy of Nancy Pelosi, that is helping Trump get reelected? I honestly think that impeachment has kind of been a B-plot in all of this. I don't think that most people have been paying attention. I think what is way more salient is when they hear Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren tell a bunch of parents who saved all their money and worked overtime to pay for their kids to go to college when they say, oh, never mind, we're just going to cancel student debt. I think that is a lot more present in the minds of voters. Today, the uh, the Bureau of Labor uh, Statistics jobs report just came out for January, and economists were predicting that we'd create 160-something thousand jobs. We created 225,000 jobs. The labor force participation rate is the highest it has been since the beginning of the economic recovery. That is what people care about. The impeachment, it was a show trial. Everyone knows this. If they wanted to have a real trial, they could have let the courts enforce subpoenas and then you could have actually forced John Bolton to testify you can't just defer that and then make the Senate do it because Nancy Pelosi didn't want to get her hands wet and so I so I, I just think people tuned it out and as a result that does benefit Trump so you're based out of DC did you go and check out any of the Senate trial or any of the uh, house impeachment nonsense where you actually did you go check it out in person or you just watch it on TV no I mean so obviously we had it on in the office every single day as it was going on when I would be at the gym after work, I would still try and like listen to it a little bit. But I, it was just so tiring after a certain point. You know, we heard from people who mattered. We heard from Sondland, who has totally discredited himself. We heard from Vinman and from Bill Taylor, people who I still think served the country with honor. But in the end, they couldn't testify first person knowledge over any of the Trump Ukraine proceedings. Yeah, the White House was being unfair in terms of paying in terms of playing hardball with trying to keep witnesses away. But the court still could have enforced subpoenas. Trump can't just blanket declare executive privilege over everything. But they didn't want to wait. Well, they didn't so want to Demo- wait because so it would have Dem- taken too long, and yeah. they were doing this for political purposes. Yes. Right, so, so. I mean, Democrats did this to themselves. They have no one to blame but themselves. Uh, so you're in D.C. I'm in New York. There's a lot of libs in both places. Yes, there You are. can refer to them as liberals, because I know the Washington Examiner <laughs> is a very proper place. The Freedom Hub, we just say whatever we want. Uh, but there's a poll out from UMass. This is a fun one. 62% of New Hampshire Democrats would rather see a giant meteor strike the earth and extinguish all human life than see President Trump reelected. Now, I know that people, when presented with this, are they're going to say that they're mostly kidding. But- 
I also think that there are a lot of people who really are having a collective nervous breakdown on the left over the prospect of a Trump reelection. And I think we're starting to see people that it's it's reflected in a neuro in the neuroses that they're unable to hide anymore. And do some of them really think that Trump is an existential threat to the country? I, I do think that there are libs who think that he's an existential threat to the country. Oh, abs- so what I, happens to these people? So the thing is, Trump has become a catch-all for everything that a certain type of intersectional left-wing progressive doesn't like. A, a good way to... Fi- so, for instance, Trump has said t- many things about women and immigrants that I abhor. One issue that Trump has always been, always, if you look back on, has always been very progressive on, has has been gay rights. Um, Trump obviously did the transmilitary ban. I'm going to leave that to the experts to debate. But in terms of first the, president, in, in first president of, to ever run in favor yes, of exactly, you know, America. I mean, he has elevated a bunch of openly gay Americans to very high positions in his administration, and also just even going back. I mean, again, he's a creature of Hollywood and he's a creature of Manhattan. He was never he never held this anti-gay animus. However, how many LGBT pride events? wind up becoming anti-Trump. And that's fine to have grievances about, for instance, the trans military ban. But Trump has just become this catch-all where they just kind of associate, because Trump has said less than eloquent or factual things about climate change, they just sort of, it all just becomes this amorphous conglomerate Orange of, man of, bad. Of, yeah, we call this yeah. orange man this bad. Is, this is exactly and This is like yes. the, the Women's March, too, is effectively yes. lots of women who have lots of left-wing grievances who are united only by their gender for the day to show how much they hate yes. Trump. It actually was not about anything other really than that. Yes, you know, and, and I think a great way to see this is, is the media now lionization of Mitt Romney. You know, I don't think Mitt Romney voted to convict on the first article because he had ulterior motives. I think he honestly felt bound to the voters of Utah. I don't agree with the conviction vote, but so be it. But the especially, I mean, we already, the media isn't hiding the game. Now, after, after years of just dragging Romney through the gutter as this horrible, evil businessman, sexist, women in binders, binders yeah. gives cancer to old people, yeah, vulture evasion, capitalist. Yeah. I remember all of it. After that, abused, now he's a hero. Ab- abused people in high school, if you remember. He was the yeah. bully that was like, I, yeah. I don't think he was shaving someone's head, but something like that. Yeah, no, yeah. And so, so now they're more than happy to jump into bed with the milk toast Mormon guy who loves his family after years of dragging him a right. satanic but, you know, this will because last he's anti but, but this will last about two days. Oh, yeah. And, and then they'll hate him again. Yeah. But, but it's, you know, yeah. he... He decided that he uh, Pierre Delecto was going to make this short-term deal with the devil, and I, I think he's going to find out that they never they never love you on the left. They only use you for a couple of days or a couple of news cycles, and, and then they move on from there. Where I want to ask you on the Democrat side of things. Do, by the way, as you sit here, do we even do we officially officially one hundred percent know who won Iowa? Are we there AP yet? AP said it's too close to call. <laughs> says, you know, I mean, it's amazing. No, you can't it's, make this stuff up. The craziest thing about that tweet that Tom Perez sent out about asking for the recount is Tom Perez, this is his party. Run the party. If any CEO of a company ran their company like this, the board of directors would have them out overnight. It's, they do, I mean, the reason why we have party procedures is so that way there is some level of top-down control to ensure most, first and foremost, election security. They couldn't even do that right. You know, after four years fulminating about Russia, 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 hackers, 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 they stole the election from Hillary. They couldn't, they hired a bunch of Hillary alumni to design an app that I think it was ProPublica found. You could Shadow hack it Inc. and manually 
and manually rewrite the votes. And they called it Shadow Inc., the name of this company. Like, that's not who you hire. This is a comic book villain. That's like like hiring Election Hackers Incorporated (laughs) to be the people that are running the app to count your Iowa caucus thing. Everyone's now saying that Iowa is not going to be the first state in the next, you know, who knows? I think people will honestly forget forget a lot about this. I feel like not only is incompetence by government officials, a very worthwhile lesson that we see from Iowa, particularly from Democrat government officials in this case, but also there's no accountability. Nothing's no, going no. to happen. No. And this is why, I mean, I think between this and between, you know, actually the whole Mueller report, it was very damning in one particular way about democratic election security that should remind us all that we do not want to trust these people with something as sensitive as our healthcare data. You know, it was in Obamacare that they, that the, the federal government mandated that private doctors transition to a certain form of HIPAA-compliant electronic medical records. But if the government's running their own EMR systems, are they going to run it just like the Iowa caucuses? Are they going to run it just like the DNC email server? Are they going to run it so the Russians can just hack into our medical data? I mean, this is one of the best cases against Medicare for all that I can think of. I've I've been the recipient of a really fun uh, letter from the federal government that's like, hey, just FYI, dude who used to work for the federal government, being me, um, the Chinese have all the stuff that you gave us initially when you went to work for us because they had this huge OPM, Office of Personal Management, hack. So just, just so you know, and then they had this really cute thing below that was like, uh, we're willing to pay for like six months of identity theft monitoring or something for you. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> thanks, guys. <laughs> like the, the Chinese government now knows everywhere I've lived, all my family members, my social security number. They know everything. Um, but you guys have got me covered with uh, an identity theft system for, for like a couple of weeks. That's good. <laughs> That's fun. So that's the federal government for you. And that was it, by the way. Like, what do you I can't sue them. I can't I can't do anything about yeah. this. So if they force you to have that information, that's that's what's going to end up happening. Uh, predictions. The fun thing about predictions now is no one expects anyone to be right anymore because of 2016. So there's no there's no downside, yeah. right? Like just make it up as you go along. Who's going to win New Hampshire? If Warren doesn't have a strong showing, she's over because because she can afford to do a very 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 weak third in Iowa. But if she loses her neighboring state after all the money that they've spent there, she's done. Does she have to win? You think, or if she um, comes in third, but like a decent third, that's good enough. I think second, decent second, she can come into. I think it's likely that Bernie has a strong showing. Um, Tulsi will actually have a very strong showing. Polling shows her it's still like 6 or 7%. And since it's not a caucus. So again, the interesting thing, Iowa and New Hampshire are almost opposite in terms of how it's done. Iowa, you need to be a registered Democrat. You need to physically caucus, which involves obviously a lot of work. New Hampshire primary it's open, so Republicans can theoretically vote in, which is why I know like the Yang campaign is holding ho- is holding out hope. Um, unfortunately, I think Bernie will have a strong showing because Biden just is. What is he doing? I don't know. I, I, I don't think Biden doesn't know. I don't think he could. I don't know. I don't, I don't think he knows what he's doing. And, I mean, on the one hand, he's been the dominant front runner in the polls for over a year now nationally. But we look at all this predictive modeling and it shows that like that Iowa loss negatively impacts his viability in like Super Tuesday states. For instance, he was leading in California dominantly a couple months ago, but now California, it's thinned out. And I think now Biden's in the lead. He can't afford to lose all these big states. You know, Biden's going to get Texas. Biden's going to get South Carolina. But the question is, by how much? Biden cannot afford to lose his 
so-called firewall. If he has a very weak showing in New Hampshire, it's possible that he very marginally wins Nevada, you, you think, somewhere he was just to clean up. You think Mayor Pete, a.k.a. Mayor Cheat, has a, uh, at least in the last few days, that's what they've been calling him. You think he has a path? What is his path if he does? I mean, Mayor Pete's path is, does Biden completely collapse and not make a deal with Amy Klobuchar? Because if I were Joe Biden right now, I'd be knocking on Amy Klobuchar's door saying, Come on. It's like it's game time. Bernie's about to win this nomination. You will be my running mate. I mean, even Klobuchar is. She'd be a strong runner. She'd be a good running mate. Klobuchar is what, like 56 and looks 10 years younger. She'd be fine to run for president in like her mid 60s after if, you know, that would be a very strong ticket. Um, yeah, the establishment yeah. would be very comfortable with it. At least yeah. it brings in that transition. In fact, maybe Biden even says, I'm only, I'll be a one-termer yeah. with Amy Klobuchar on the bottom of the ticket. But now we, we, we get into this conversation because I feel like everyone understands at this point, including probably Biden himself, that there really isn't a front-runner, even if the polls say there is, just because of the dynamics of how these races are going to play out in different places. And obviously, Bernie effectively winning Iowa, Mayor Pete, Bernie, you know, pick one. Um what do you think about Bloomberg and all this? We talked about him earlier in the show today. Bloomberg has spent he spent $250 million. He has hundreds of millions more at his disposal. And he's now paying uh, Instagram influencers, I think it is, to make him seem make his ad seem cool and be like, yeah, I like Mayor Bloomberg. I mean, what what on earth is his is his campaign strategy? Were you following when his when his tw- when his campaign Twitter account Made his put his face in like a meatball during like the last Democratic debates. I, I did not. It was see this that. weird meme where he's trying to resonate with the millennials who will never want to vote for the billionaire old New York mayor. Um, I mean, the thing about Bloomberg is, for a moderate, he is deeply authoritarian, and I think something that you and I both care about, deeply sycophantic to the Chinese government because it influences his business. I mean, sometimes I I think a Bloomberg. The news organization hires a lot of fantastic reporters, but every once in a while, I'll see a story, and I'm like, "Did Beijing send you the talking points for this?" Well, he's the one who, in in interviews, has said that China's not authoritarian. Yeah, and everybody who pays yeah. any attention to China is just flabbergasted. Yeah, no, and, by this. and so that's why I just think there are so many things that make Bloomberg a functional non-starter as a moderate candidate. You know, Biden is an Biden in the context of this race is an actual moderate because he's not proposing any. Anything that could be done with executive action that is functionally authoritarian, Biden's not necessarily proposing. You know, obviously, Biden wants a public option, something that would involve Congress, something that I don't think would actually it's not going to pass through as long as cocaine Mitch is in charge. Um, But yeah, Biden. But Bloomberg, you know, this is someone who doesn't view our Second Amendment rights as rights. If, if you just look at how he treated New York, I mean, in some part, he does deserve the blame for the environment where New York now is these human rights commissions going into private industries and reshaping their hiring and firing practices. You know, um, we got to take a pause for one second. I'll come back and maybe do a lightning round to finish this up. But uh, more with uh, Tiana Lowe in a moment. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, joined here in studio in the Freedom Hut down in Tribeca, which is a very hip, very cool neighborhood. We only bring <laughs> you to the f- most fun parts of, of town. We've got to Tiana Lowe, commentary writer for the Washington Examiner and contributor to The First, those of you watching us on Pluto TV, channel 230, uh, 248, uh, The First. Uh, so let me ask you this. what What is the most, for you, the most interesting part of the year ahead is going to be what? Election-wise. Election-wise, so there's some good, some bad. If this is 
if this winds up being the Bernie Trump race that I think it will be, I'm going to set myself up for disappointment and hope that the Trump we got at the State of the Union, when it came specifically to his opening remarks, when it came to one of the best and surprising populist cases for capitalism, an affirmative case for capitalism, I would love to see how that plays out because Trump's never really played that. You know, Trump sort of ran as not as conservative on economics, you know, because I'm Trump's never going to touch entitlements. Trump has made it clear he does not care about blowing out the deficit. But Trump still cares about business. Trump still cares about private industry, you know, for even though he may not be as conservative as we want when it comes to fiscal policy. I will love to see that debate. Actually, our country, actually, if we're if we're going to have the showdown about socialism versus capitalism, let's do this and let's do this right. Um, and maybe Trump is the person and I'm saying this very begrudgingly because I don't consider myself a populist and I have no patience for the collectivism that I'm seeing rising on both sides. But maybe Trump is the one to bridge the divide between free market economics, what we understand works, and also on a, on a macro level, but also how it helps out individuals. Because that is a language that Trump speaks very well. He knows how to talk to the little guy. Um, so that's something I'm excited for. Another thing that I think will be interesting the Senate race is not going to be as comfortable for Republicans as, it, as they think it is. You know, if if we lose Collins' seat, McSally's seat, um, Tillis' seat, and Cory Gardner's seat, we're down to a 50-50 split, even if we get back uh, the Alabama seat. Well, that'll be really interesting. And that'll also, be very when scary. They, when, they, when they impeach Trump for a second time, they have the oh, House, which they will do, by the way, they if better, he wins. They better impress me a little bit more next time around yeah this, this, this just is a got weak sauce a fast. weak sauce impeachment that's for sure tiana Lowe, thank you so much for joining us here we'll be seeing more of her on the first and also you can wa- uh, read her latest commentary at the washington examiner we'll be right back with roll call thanks for listening to the bus sex and show podcast remember to subscribe on apple podcast the iheart radio app or wherever you get your podcasts It's time for Roll Call. All right, everybody. Roll Call time before you're enjoying your weekend. It's my favorite uh, favorite way to end the day. Roll Call. You remember Monday? What? What, 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 what did I do wrong? Why are you looking at me like I'm a crazy person? Well, you're looking at your phone for roll call, and I so nicely printed. Oh it. no, I, I, I no, but I, uh-huh. that was for something. That was for something else. Okay. All right. All right. Producer, Mal, producer Mark has been particularly salty today. I'll have you I all have know, not by been. the way. I mean, producer Mark is a little, you know, he's strutting his stuff ever since he dropped all that knowledge yesterday about 1930s Art Deco architecture. You know, the guy's guy's been a little bit on a tear. I'm just saying. So. I'm reading your printout roll call. I appreciate it. it yeah, is here I just for try me. to make your life easier. I know so, he does. Uh, we call I just give you Mark a- is the command center slash the penalty box. Yeah. But what I realize is that he may be in the penalty box, but sometimes he puts me in the penalty box. So let's get to roll call. Oh, Monday. Remember, uh, for those of you in the New York area or who listen on the iHeart app, W O R in the New York area, seven ten on the AM dial. W O R. Uh, that's how you can listen. Six to seven p.m. On Monday, uh, it's going to be every every day, Monday through Friday, six to seven p.m. Eastern Time. WR Radio. Uh, so, Team Buck NYC and Team Buck Tri-State Area, please, please do check it out. Do listen. 
Got to get those numbers as high as we can, as quickly as we can, because more great things are coming for the Buck Sexton Show if we continue to grow and have the success we've had so far. Uh, all right. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Let's get to it. Bill writes, hey, Buck, why do you ditch the name James for Buck? James is a much better name. When I think of James, I think of James Dean, James Wood, and James Madison. When I think of Buck, I think of John Candy. Bill, it's a fair question. Uh, it was not a choice. It wasn't something that I decided. I was called Buck ever since I was an infant uh, by my parents, by my family. That was always my name. Uh, my parents made things a little more challenging than they had to be. I actually had a teacher in the seventh grade, I think, uh, who refused to call me Buck. Refused. Didn't care that that was what I like to be called. That's what I'd always been called. Said, nope, not going to do it. Which was bizarre, by the way. I've never forgotten that. The guy's like, no, I'm not going to call you that name. Now I could have said I'm actually non-gender binary and want to be referred to by the pronoun Z. And he would have had to be like, yes, sir. Or, or oh, whoa, not yes, sir. Yes, Z. <laughs> Whoops, my bad. <laughs> or else there would have been problems. So things have changed. But yeah, no, it's, Buck is not like a stage name. It's always been Buck. James is a great name. And that's my escape hatch. You know, if I ever decide that the, the heat gets to be too much in conservative media and I just want to be have a normal job again, be a normal person uh, who doesn't have, you know, death threats coming in and people telling me that, you know, I should uh, go take a long walk off a short pier every day, uh, then I can just become James. So, yeah, there you go. Roger, Buck, did the monocle make your ribeye taste better? Uh, yes, indeed it did. Actually, the monocle makes everything taste a little bit better. Because you sit there and say, oh, what are the plebs eating tonight? Plebs are probably having some kind of burger like, like the uncivilized rabble they are. I'm sitting here with my ribeye, perfectly seared, medium rare in the middle. I mean, burger's pretty great, too. I love all red. Can meat. you even enjoy a burger properly without a good bun? There are decent gluten-free buns. Decent is the key word there. Yeah, but no, you need a lot of accoutrement to make up for it. So that's when mm -hmm. you start throwing on, like, cheese and oh. sautéed onions, and, you know, the, then you could, you know, the burger can be a fun thing without a bun. But no, I mean, the best burgers obviously have buns. Yeah. Although a lot of good burgers, I think, are ruined by a less than uh, excellent bun. You don't want yes, a mediocre bun on a very good burger because then the whole thing becomes mediocre. But a great bun can make a bad burger better. That is true. Mm. I mean, it can obviously enhance it a little bit. But if the meat is low quality, you're always kind of stuck in a... True. It's not... That's when you just got to, like, ketchup. Just just drown it in ketchup if the meat is kind of... I remember when I was in a grammar school, we used to have burger day at school, and it was always those, like, gray... Formula, you know those gray hockey puck-looking burgers that had the little sure. like the McDonald's like stuff. Yeah, like yeah, just the stuff that's straight out of the freezer. It was disgusting. The stuff they used to feed us. It was really bad. Oh yeah, I remember. The, I the, the, the food in the schools school, I went to, the food in the grammar school I went to, and the food in the high school I went to was on. I'm not even kidding. The food in my high school here in New York City, because I, 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 I know a little bit about the worse than prison food. Mm. Worse that it was disgusting. It was really bad. Surprisingly, I went to high school in Florida. The food was pretty good at high school. Yeah. I was shocked because the New York happen. City public schools, terrible. That can happen. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, and there's no excuse, by the way. Like, if you don't want to make really good food, just have, like, fresh, you know, have some fresh cold cuts, some some apples and bananas. And, you know, it's not it's not hard to give kids something good to eat. Uh, some, uh, what were we just talking about a second? No, not prosciutto. That's a different, uh, but, uh, you know, the the meat, the sliced Accoutrement? meat. No, the, the, the sliced meat. The, Cold the, cuts? No, from, like, the Katz's Delicatessen. Pastrami. Oh, pastrami. Pastrami. Yeah. I keep I keep wanting to say 
uh, uh, you don't even know. Yeah, no, I was the thing that uh, uh, gyro. No, nah, for, forget. It. I, no. I, I'm, I spaced on it. Don't worry about it. Brian, Buck, congrats on that very large stretcher radio pickup with WOR. It could not have come to a more deserving, hardworking, truthful, and intelligent individual. I've counted on your insight to give me a pulse on things, speak truth, and make me laugh all the way since the Blaze days. You're, you growing up conservative in the liberal mecca of NYC is a powerful insight to make your AM show at WR grow fast. Buck speaking truth to the people of New York and New Jersey will be a good thing to change leftist minds for truth in 2020. Though we have not met yet, I still refer to you as my buddy Buck when sending them a link to your podcast to follow. Stay humble, brother. I know you will. Your friend, Brian, OSS. Brian, I promise you I'll always stay humble, my friend. And also, uh, I will try to always be worthy of the very kind note that you sent. Um, it's very nice of you to support the show in that way and to spread the word about us. And thank you for that. And yeah, I think we're going to I think we're going to really have a lot of fun talking to folks of New York on Terrestrial Radio 710 WOR. I'm going to say it a cool way because that's like old school radio, right? You got to be able to yeah, yeah, since you're just a radio show now. Seven ten W O R. Yeah, you're not the voice guy though. They have a voice guy that'll say that. Yeah, but like I want to say it cool too. They yeah. usually have some catchy slogan too. Yeah. Like, I know well, it's the voice be, of New York. Yeah, the voice of New York. The voice of New York. Seven ten W O R. I don't know if they changed it since I left there. Yeah, yeah. Uh. I don't know. Marco, Buck, I'm enjoying the steak talk. Had never heard about reverse searing, but will definitely try it on my next ribeye. Previously, I had been sous-viding and searing, but can see where drying out the steak uh, more could be beneficial. The sous-vide is still required uh, equipment for leftover steak, though. It comes out just like when it came out of the kitchen originally. Also, have you tried olive beef before? I'm usually not a huge fan of the price premium of Wagyu, but this stuff is mind-blowing. Check it out. You won't be disappointed. Shields high. Uh, Marco, I've never done sous-vide. People have brought this up, but, you know. It sounds kind of fancy in French and, uh, um, you know, yeah, it's something that you got to just accept is going to be a little more complicated, a little harder. So um, hold, hold on a second. Producer Mark, the, we, we are here and, and we are having a discussion about meat. And I haven't, have you ever had sous vide? I don't <laughs> think so. Not off the top of my head would I know if I had that or not. So uh, something I try. Yeah. I'll try meat anyway. Yeah. That's um, a good sound bite. Yeah, no, I mean, I think red meat is a good thing to cook no matter how you cook it pretty mm. much. So red meat's pretty delicious. I would try reverse sear, though, if you really want. But the only thing is you got to be a little bit neurotic about, like, checking the temperature, checking. Because if you if you can overcook going, and then, you, then you've ruined the whole thing, even if you sear it perfectly. But I, I really highly recommend it. Uh, so I would say check it out. What if you um, don't have the time to make a reverse sear? Like, you seem like you have to spend, like, an hour or two on dinner every day. I don't know how you have the time. You can barely show up to work on time. How do you have time to reverse sear a steak? Yeah. I don't know. That's a good uh, point. That yeah. is a good point yeah. I make. Being, uh. being, being a salty, salty man. See, producer Mark, he well, just, sits, salty he just sits there with like a big watch and just points at it every time I walk in. I'm like, the show starts when I start, producer Mark. That's how this works. But, you know, he's he's you know the, the voice of- Do you know the phrase, happy wife, happy life? Yeah. For Hap you, it's happy producer, happy uh, life. That's, that is more true than ever. Uh, so, there we are. Um, all right. We got one more. We got another one here. Let's get to it. Greg, 
Buck, I'm a huge fan of the show. Started listening religiously about a month ago after I heard you on air. Then I went to your podcast on Spotify. Knew who you were already. Your show gives me the same satisfaction and humor value as Rush Limbaugh does. Your impressions have my have me dying of laughter on a daily basis. I'm a 33-year-old millennial living in a world of a bunch of Bernie bro friends. I tried getting them to listen to you to no avail, but one thing I've learned is never take politics personally like a lot of them do. Shields high. Well, Greg, thank you so much, man. That's really, really kind, and I, I do appreciate it. Um, Bernie bros, you're welcome to listen to the show, Bernie bros, and you will learn a lot, a lot more than you will listen to Bernie Sanders. Who knows more, Buck or Bernie? It's not even close, folks. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, roll call continuing here. Ross... Right. So remember, if you want to send us something, it's teambuck at iheartmedia.com or facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Ross writes, hey, Buck, been listening for years. You're my go-to daily show. The weekends are long without it, so I just re-listen. I love the later part of the show and roll call these days. Producer Mark is great. You guys are funny together. Yeah, don't 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 blow his head up too much. He's... He's all, oh, I'm, fantastic. I'm, now, I'm now a known voice on a nationally syndicated show, and everyone loves me. It's correct. You're earning it, but, you know, stay but humble, producer Mark. Don't worry. My head will always be smaller than yours. <laughs> Fact check true. People ask me, they're like, what is your hat size? And I'm like, you guys don't understand. There is no hat size for my, and my head is too big for hats. They make a fitted, like, eight and a half kind of deal. I mean, maybe we have to just come in here with a tape measure and, yeah. like, really see what the full circumference is. I mean, good thing is. you're not a baseball fan, because I don't know how you would wear a fitted hat. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. it doesn't. I'm telling you, with the, with the poofy hair and then with the with the circumference of this cranium, there's just no way. People are like, oh, I have a big head, too. And I see them like, that's not a big head. I feel like Crocodile Dundee when the guy pulls out a switchblade and he's like, that's not a knife. That's a yeah. knife. He's got like the huge, you sure. know. Would you have to get like a hair machete. mitt if you ever like wore, like rode a motor- motorcycle? or? A I mean, bike? I had to get a special XL helmet when I was flying around in helicopters in Iraq because you had to wear a helmet for sure. safety reasons. And uh, I had to like actually get a special one. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. I had a special special helmet, so I'm that guy. Um, Eric, right? Oh, wait, no, sorry. Ross was saying congrats, congrats on the New York radio show. You, will you be uploading that hour on iHeart and other podcasts as well? I hope you do. We need more bucks. Sorry to suggest more work for producer Mark. Producer Mark, what do you think, man? We, I think we, st- I think we're gonna stay with one podcast. Yeah, cause... we don't want to confuse people with multiple podcasts, so that's gonna be a radio only thing for WOR in New York, and uh, we'll have the three hours of fun here anyway. I, I think that's, I think that's the way it's gonna be. But folks, remember, you can listen streaming on to the WOR show if you want. Which remember, it's gonna be a little more of a New York. Those who are in the New York area, it's not gonna be as much necessarily your cup of tea. As the national show is, which is what we're current. This is the national show. This is about what affects the country the most. And I'm just happen to be doing it from New York City. But starting Monday on WR, we're going to be doing a New York focused hour, New York focused show. Eric. Hey, Buck, love the show. Just want to say that Mitt Romney is like strawberry ice cream. He makes no sense and leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Shields high. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate that, man. You know, my parents told me. That they like strawberry ice cream, and I still can't tell if they're messing with me or not. You bring that up every time. You know, I know, but I, I yeah. feel like I feel like I don't even know them anymore. Have you like gone to their house and gone to the freezer see if I should I should do a cream? spot check for strawberry ice cream yeah. and see if they really have. Now, them would it be bad if they had you know the three flavor one? What is it called? Neapolitan? Oh, the Briars or yeah, whatever? Yeah, or is, is it Bri- does Maybe I think Briars does it. A couple yeah. companies do it. Yeah. yeah. Would that? I be mean, okay? I feel like if the strawberry is hitching a ride with the chocolate and the vanilla, 
you know, you can't be blamed for that. Yeah. But if you're buying just specifically strawberry ice cream, I have questions. Whenever I, I was a kid and one of those would be out, I would only take the chocolate. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I was always a mad. chocolate guy over vanilla. I don't know. I don't know how anybody else. But, you know, vanilla's a good second place. Sure. You know, vanilla's a good number two. So, you got that. Uh, John, Buck, I have an idea, and I would greatly value your opinion. Well, John, that's because you're a smart fellow. What if every bill signed into law had to have a 15-year sunset? A bill would go through the typical process, but if signed into law 15 years later, the House would vote on the bill again. That bill, if passed by the House again, would then surpass the Senate since it was already passed into law once and go directly to the president. The president could then either re-sign the bill into law or veto it. I believe this could help with preventing long-term damage a Democrat House and Senate could do, cause a president like Bernie Sanders. What are your initial thoughts on this? John, it's an interesting idea. I like that you're kind of putting your founding father's hat on here. Um, but, you know, it would cause a lot of additional work, right? So every bill, everything that happens would have to then be revisited in 15 years. And you could say, well, then if it's a good idea, we'll never go for it. But no, not necessarily. And uh, the Congress does pass a lot of laws and pass a lot of bills that uh, already, I think, we're just lucky. First of all, I think it's generally better when the Congress does less. <laughs> so that's one thing. And to add to their workload uh, probably is not going to give us the outcome that we want. Um, I don't know. I don't know, John. I got to think about that a little bit. I mean, it's sort of like it's like term limits for laws is what you're proposing, which is which is interesting. Uh, term limits for Congress would be great, but it's never going to happen because guess what? The people that would have to go for it are the people that would be affected by it. Uh, Greg. I wasn't a fan of Trump at the beginning. What I've come to like about the man is he does what he says he was going to do. I might not agree with some of it, but that is how respect and trust are earned. As far as all the things I say about him and accuse him of, when it's true, he owns it like a man. He doesn't make excuses. He burns down their bonfire before they can even light it. I think we have the most human, manly president right now than we have had in my lifetime. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Greg, he definitely he is what he is, and that's all that he is. Isn't that Popeye, right? I am what I am, and that's all that I am. Isn't that like a Popeye? Please never do the Popeye voice again. Wow, that was awful. Look, I haven't heard Popeye in like 20 years. I mean, I I had to go deep into the Buck Brain archives for that one. That's far back. (laughs) There's a lot of room There's a lot of dust and a lot of of cobwebs. Yeah, it's it's been a while, but, you know. Popeye! Is that Uh, Popeye? (laughs) I'm an olive oil. Now, now whatever. Radio's off. Yeah, now whatever you uh, complain about me arriving the studio late, I'm just gonna be like, producer Mark. (laughs) Wow, really? I knew he was gonna do it. I knew he was gonna do it because he's just trying to add it. You know, I actually came on. There's a song. It's like a contemporary song by a kind of a hipstery band, and it starts out with whistling. And I heard it. um, Is it this one? Very similar, but no. not not that one. It's another one. That's my one. Flo Rida. Uh, How many whistling why, sounds? There's a lot of whistling songs, damn it. A lot of them. All right, everybody, you're going to have a fantastic weekend. Bruce and Mark and I are going to arm wrestle in here to determine who gets to determine music next week. Thank you so much for being here. If you can, join me, WR Radio, 6 Eastern uh, in Monday on Monday in the New York area, 710 on the AM dial. Tune in, tune in. Also, uh, spread the word about the show, Pass the Buck. Tell somebody, download the podcast, listen to the Buck Sexton Show. It's a huge, huge solid for those of us here that work real hard to make sure the show is good. Have a great weekend. Shields high.